0: This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good faith, fam. We are bringing back one of my favorite guests ever. He's the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, number one New York Times bestselling author, amazing friend of the pod, one of the most important faith leaders in the country today. He's Pastor Sam Rodriguez, and we're going to talk about perseverance. So let me set the stage. I want to tackle one of the strangest, most mysterious, and and ultimately most inspiring stories in the Bible, and maybe in world literature. It's in Genesis 32. And it's Jacob preparing to confront his terrifying older brother Esau for the first time in years. And it's the night before the fateful meeting and Jacob is sitting there alone when all of a sudden a mysterious figure appears and he attacks Jacob and Jacob finds himself in a supernatural fight for his life. And he actually sustains an injury that would leave him with a limp for the rest of his life. But eventually Jacob triumphs and he asks this mysterious figure, an angel perhaps, for a blessing. And in a reply that would echo across the generations, this figure, this angel replies by telling Jacob that from now on, he'd be known not merely as Jacob, but by the name Israel. And it's at that point that the story ends with the words in Hebrew, which means, and he blessed him there. Now, you all may have noticed that those words are technically ambiguous, right? Who blessed whom? The answer, of course, seems pretty obvious. I mean, didn't the verse just tell us that the attacking angel blessed Jacob? And that's basically how every single commentator for literally thousands of years until today has understood the verse, right? Simple enough. Well, not exactly, because there is one exception. There's this ancient Jewish biblical commentary. It's a 1,000 years old. It's called Midrash Seichal Tov, that actually interprets the verse to mean that somehow, for some reason, just before the angel departed, it was Jacob who gave a blessing to the angel. What? Why? Like, why on earth would Jacob bless the angel? Now, you might say, well, the angel represented all the grief, the tragedy, the challenges in Jacob's life, and Jacob was teaching us that really those things were good and isn't suffering all from God, so shouldn't we be happy about suffering? But aside from that being bad theology, we shouldn't fetishize suffering, it's also a bad reading of the text, because if that's what the Bible had meant, it would have said something like, and Jacob thanked the angel there, or Jacob praised him there, but it doesn't. It says that Jacob blessed the angel. So what does that mean? And I think. And when it happens, it's okay to feel frustrated or upset or even angry because suffering is, is so often out of our hands. And so it's very natural. It's deeply human to react that way when things feel out of control. But it's so what is it's control? Person, it's the suffering in response to suffering in response to challenges. Right, Perhaps we can't know why suffering happens, but we can choose what we do about it. And that's why Jacob blesses the angel. He blesses his challenge. Because the act of blessing reflects a decision on our part. It's a decision to look at a part of life, whether it's the food we eat or an experience we have, and make a judgment about how to respond to it. The act of blessing reflects choice. And in that respect, it's much more powerful than just gratitude. Because in the end, even animals express gratitude. But only human beings can offer a blessing. So Jacob looks at the challenges in his life and says, I can't control when or why you appear. And I don't have to give thanks for you, but I can control how I respond to you. And now, given the exhausting two years that we've just had with so much suffering, loneliness, social conflict, it can be tempting to just give in, to throw up our hands, surrender to the darkness. But is there a way instead to learn the lesson of Jacob, to bless our challenges, to persevere? And so to unpack all of this, this crucial matter, I brought on one of the country's most important faith leaders, someone who's given a great deal of thought to this question, especially in his new book called Persevere with Power. He's the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, number one New York Times bestselling author, friend of the pod. He's Pastor Sam Rodriguez. Pastor, thanks so much for being here. My friend, thank
2: you for having me. Thank you.
1: So I've had a chance to read the book and everyone should pre-order now. It's fantastic. One of the major themes of the book and really the way the book is structured is around the biblical stories of Elijah and Alicia. So why those two? Why did? Why were those two so resonant for you at a moment like this?
2: Oh, it speaks to me. Our current cultural, social, political generational landscape We are officially living in what now has been deemed as a cuckoo for Cocoa Puff moment. (laughs) And because we're living in this cuckoo for Cocoa Puff moment, I looked at a narrative in scripture that really encapsulates even our response, Elijah and Alicia. We find Alicia in 1 Kings 1919, literally pushing a plow, pushing a plow. There's no dialogue. As a movie producer, I want to capture this in a 21st century setting because it's just so, it's just powerful. Alicia's pushing a plow. Elijah, the iconic rock star prophet, you know that Elisha and Moses, of course, the two most highly recognized prophets in the Old Testament, of course, he comes along, no dialogue, takes his prophetic mantle, places it on Elisha, and like a boss with swag, walks away. (laughs) Mic drop. (laughs) I mean, right there, mic drop, not even one bit of conversation. So I use that as the meta narrative for the entire book. And I speak to the idea of the plow pusher. If you're a plow pusher in life, if you know what it is to push the plow in your family, your home, your marriage, your calling, your career, your community, your generation, your nation, for that matter, if you know what it is to push life's proverbial plow on good days and bad days, sunny days and rainy days, on days when everyone loves you and on days where you can't even stand yourself, then there is without a doubt, biblically substantiated, a mantle of promotion coming your way. So it's the plow pusher, the plow of perseverance will lead to the mantle of promotion. That's not hype. It's not exuberance. It's not some sort of positive confession rhetoric to somehow stimulate your emotions to keep on going. It's just inevitable in scripture. It's theologically sound from Genesis to Revelation. That plow will lead to a mantle of promotion with the caveat, both in the Psalms and in the New Testament, in Galatians 6, 9, Paul writing, as long as you don't give up. That's what motivated me to drive the book to every single plow pusher out there in the past two years.
1: One of the things that actually the whole book made me think of it, in particular, when you talk about that motif and that moment of transition between Elijah and Alicia, what it really made me think about was sort of a particularly powerful form of Jewish thought, which is Hasidic thought. So people are familiar with sort of the Hasidic movement today. Where it really generates is in this kind of moment, sort of the 17th, 18th centuries, where Jewish culture in many ways and in many positive ways had become like sort of very elite focus. Like you had to study Torah at the highest possible level in order to be worth anything. And there's something truly positive about that, and it it persists to this day in really wonderful ways, and I actually feel that very strongly. What Hasidic thought comes along and does is sort of like in the backwaters of Poland and eventually parts of Lithuania, Hungary, is it finds normal people, plow pushers. It finds water carriers, it finds woodcutters, peddlers, tailors, shoemakers, and says, you actually can make a difference. You can sanctify the world that you're in. Beautiful. And I feel like we're in this culture now where whether you're on the right or the left, like in many ways, sort of like the increasingly dizzying and Byzantine vocabulary of wokeness, for example, in elite spaces and college campuses, like you have to have a graduate degree to even begin a sentence. And I feel like we're at this space where it's kind of like a moment of truth for American society. Like who is going to take the reins of the future? Does your book, when it talks about plow pushers, in addition to just the metaphor of of pushing a plow, does it speak to that idea that, you know, you matter at this moment?
2: It speaks to you matter on steroids. It speaks to you matter on the idea that regardless of where you are from, regardless of your pedigree, your social academic background, the educational acuity or acumen, uh, the cognitive bandwidth that you inherited, whatever it may be, there is this encounter that will enable you to emerge with this mantle of promotion. I have this crazy dream and it's contextualized again, it's all context. What if we come around the understanding that, spiritually speaking of course, but what if we are cognizant of the fact that just like the time of Elijah and Elisha, we're combating the spirit of Jezebel to a great degree. The quintessential cancel culture spirit, Jezebel, boy would she ever cancel you. She killed every prophetic voice, right? She was out there killing anyone who was committed to any vestige of truth. You spoke truth. You spoke against the institutionalized, endorsed ideology of Baal. You're gone. And she only tolerated those that would be silent. But anyone who would speak up against her and her Asherah poles, she was obsessed with building Asherah poles. She would build these poles in every corresponding village and city for the purpose of intimidating. And her husband, of course, Ahab, who in 1 Kings 16, 29 to 34, was the only king who had the audacity in Israel's history to authorize the rebuilding of Jericho. Who does that? no one. Ahab, Joshua's quote unquote, blessed curse in Joshua chapter six, anyone who dares to rebuild these walls, their children will suffer the consequences, right? This man, no other king had the audacity. They understood Joshua's declaration, but this man said, hey, Joshua, forget about it. And he authorizes the rebuilding. Ahab, Jezebel, Ari, we're living in times just like the days of Jezebel and Ahab. We're living in times where anyone who dares to speak truth to power be it about faith, spirituality, I would even argue, be it about science, human physiology, mathematics, if you dare to speak truth, there's a good possibility you will be canceled. that the Jezebelian spirit will once again emerge and, speaking in a crude way, decapitate your ability, take away your ability from speaking truth to power. Hence, this book is for the activation of the Elijah and Elishas of the 21st century. Can we see a generation rise up that will dare confront Jezebel? And say, hold on a second. No, no, no. You're not going to silence us. And that's what this book's all about. If you've been pushing the plow, then I want to speak to every cultural architect, societal reformer, to every innovator, creative person, to, to every mom and dad, every entrepreneur, every student, every single person who says, there's a reason why I've been pushing the plow. I get this. Again, if you've never pushed life's plow, don't expect to carry a mantle of promotion. The mantle of promotion is for the plow pusher. So if you don't know what it is to persevere in the most egregious of circumstances, this may or not well be for you. But if you know what it is to keep on pushing on the worst of days, in the worst of circumstances, then I need you to get ready. Because without a doubt, you're on this planet for a purpose. And it's not to occupy space or just order every week from Amazon Prime.
1: Your point about Jericho is so important. One of the things that occurred to me as I was reading the way that you kind of apply Ahab and Jezebel to the contemporary social moment right and left. I mean, this is like a, this is sort of a much more systemic problem that we're dealing with. One of the things that occurred to me is that if you kind of take the internal political logic of what was happening in the era of First Kings and days of Ahab and Jezebel, I mean, this was like the best moment you could imagine for the for the ancient Israelites. I mean, it was a union, an economic union of the northern Israelite kingdom and Sidon, right? And that's sort of like the genius of the Israelites with the entrepreneurship of the Phoenicians. I mean, this is an incredible moment and Ahab is so powerful and Jezebel has brought, as you were pointing out, all these Asherah poles to towns and villages across the countryside. People have bread and circuses as much as they want. And Elijah is kind of like this killjoy. I mean, and by the way, rebuilding Jericho. I mean, think about it. Like you're taking this empty plot of land and you're developing it. What could be wrong? And Elijah and Elisha are coming along and saying, not that development is bad, not that growth is bad. On the contrary. I mean, the entire thrust of the Bible is that we move from a garden at one end of the Bible to a city at the other end of the Bible. That's the thrust. But what Elijah and Elisha are saying is, We have to remember the story that we're telling, the intergenerational story that we're telling. Sure, maybe right now, like in a snapshot in time, is a good moment. But we need to be cognizant of the fact that we're actually just links in a much larger chain. And if you can't see the chain any longer, you're doomed. And so the most poignant passage, I think in your book, I underlined it like 90 times, was when you talk about the moment when Elijah transfers sort of leadership, as it were, to Elisha. He doesn't say a word. He takes off his mantle and he puts it on him. And then when Elijah leaves, when Elijah's sort of taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, we don't hear any parting words between the two of them. And the idea that Elijah can sort of leave this world without knowing whether his story has come to an end, right? Without knowing whether his purpose has been fulfilled. Isn't that the ingredient that we're missing in our contemporary moment? Like, we think that we need to be the beginning, middle, and end of every story we tell.
2: That is brilliant and absolutely correct. The idea is... There is a mantle. If we do this the right way, our children will not inherit our mistakes. Our children will inherit our mantles. There it is. It's about a multi-generational transference of a faith legacy, not just of a faith legacy, of a values legacy, of this amazing ethos that has emerged throughout the course of history for the purpose of advancing humanity. This right here is what's in peril. What are we going to transfer over to the next? All right, there, there are a couple of elements to unpack in what you just laid out and what you cross reference to the book. The idea that he was pushing the plow, the mantle pause upon him, and then he walks with him. Elisha then pursues Elijah to Gilgal. The first stop is Gilgal, the place where the first altar was built. I mean, who does that? The altar was specific for a purpose for every generation to know, to be cognizant of the fact that the same God who made a way before will always make a way. Wow. And then they go to Bethel. It's that encounter with Jacob and the ladder in the Jacob vision. and
1: the ladder, exactly. It's, you know,
2: in your hard place, in some of your hardest hours, you're going to have the greatest of dreams, and and you always should be driven by that dream and that vision. And then they go to, to Jericho, of course, reminding you that our children will walk upon the ruins of what we bring down in our generation. Your children and your children's children will inevitably walk upon the ruins of what you have, the audacity, the faith, the wherewithal, the fortitude to bring down in your generation, what you're willing to confront and bring down. And then, of course, Jordan, which is the great way maker opponent, right? Here's Jordan. Here's how we got here. This was the last thing we had to cross. And here it is. Let me do it again. Boom. And God makes a way. So I love that it all has a strong metaphorical, prophetic, long life, generational element to it. But in the midst of all of that, there is this reality that when at the end of the day, Elijah suffered this moment of angst, some would argue the strong terms are anxiety and depression of what he went through. He had his great moment with Ahab, right? The great confrontation in First Kings 18 on the Mount. What an epic scene again as a movie producer, epic. This is better than Lord of the Rings. This is awesome. This is, you know, Ahab coming on board and Elijah coming on board. You bring your God. I bring my God. Let's see which one is left standing. I mean, this is the battle of the OK Corral on steroids. right?
1: Exactly. I was say high noon. High noon. (laughs) Boom.
2: Let's do this. And it happens, and God answers Elijah, fire, you know the story well. And you know, Jezebel's worship team was consumed, all their life insurance policies kicked in simultaneously. So we have this amazing narrative, and then he falls into a depression because Jezebel posts on her Facebook account, in essence, and says, in 24 hours, read it, first Kings 19:2. Verbatim, she says, I swear by my gods in 24 hours, Elijah will be dead. Elijah hears this, freaks out, panic mode goes into a literally a cave in anxiety and depression, right? The great story here is this, which I love, is that 24 hours passed and Elijah did not die. And the way that that Jezebel expressed it, the way that I phrase it in the book, she prophylied. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) It sounded like a prophecy, but it was a lie because she was very assertive. In 24 hours, I swear by my gods, no doubt about it, that man will be dead. Sounded like a prophecy, But she prophesied. 24 hours passed, 40 hours passed, a week passed. Those that know it well, a year passed, a century passed, a millennia passed. It's been 2,800 years approximately since Jezebel declared Elijah's death and the man has yet to die. (laughs) Second Kings chapter two, verse 11 says that a chariot of fire separated Elisha and Elijah when they were walking together. And then a whirlwind took them up and he never died. What does that tell you and I? It tells you and I that we can't drink the Kool-Aid, man. All the negativity that we're bombarded with right now, and it is negative. Like this is it, the end of times, we're done. Oh, woe is me, it's over. And I have great empathy, I get it. COVID is real, my daughter almost passed away from COVID. I wrote about it in a book. So I'm not negating the reality of COVID. I'm just saying, it's all negative. From the moment you get up in the morning, you start scrolling on your phone. Negative, 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 negative. And at the end of the day, Jezebel had this super embodied negative spirit, but it never came to pass. The opposite took place. The man has yet to die. You need to come in agreement with me that if you do things right, if you lay out the narrative of this story, if you commit yourself to passing a mantle, a legacy to the next generation, the opposite of whatever Jezebel has declared will take place. Your family's not going to fall apart, man. Your marriage is not doomed in perpetuity. Everything's not going to hell in a handbasket. No, just be committed to passing on to the next generation, not your mistakes, but your mantles.
1: Hold on just one sec. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. I was thinking about this actually just a couple hours ago. Ever since the 18th century, historians have been like obsessed with the fall of the Roman Empire, how and why it happened. And so probably the best book that I've seen on this in recent years, is a book by a guy named Kyle Harper. I think he's at University of Oklahoma. It's called The Fate of Rome. And he makes use of tons of new research and methods. It's fascinating to show that the fall of Rome was the result not of politics, religion or barbarian invasions and whatnot. But it was actually a devastating wave of viruses, pandemics and other forces of nature, which is fascinating. And it's an amazing book that, to me, at least kind of spoke to the manner in which nations, societies and other grand human endeavors are ultimately at God's mercy. But as I read your book, especially the way that it responds to the suffering brought on by COVID, brought on by a pandemic, I kept thinking, huh, you know, the fall of Rome was the rise in many ways of Jerusalem. This is the moment when Christianity spreads across the globe. It's an explosion, even in the face of persecution. It's an explosion of Jewish learning that would shape the Renaissance and American democracy. And so is right now, at the same time that we're wrestling with terrible suffering and trying to claw our way out of it as best as we can. But I sort of feel so strongly what you're saying, which is a lot of this is about temperament. How do we regard the future? So is right now... As a pandemic kind of crashes up against America as a global superpower, maybe the most powerful one since Rome, is right now a moment for faith, like it was once upon a time in the Roman past?
2: This is the moment for faith. The level of spirituality in the past two years, some initial surveys coming out of very viable research companies, not those on the fringe of a political agenda, but those that are academically viable and palpable, the level of spirituality has increased in a very significant way, not to a particular religious narrative now, but the hunger for spirituality. And of course, that's logical, right? You would see people looking up when everything around is going to hell. What do you do? You look up. It's just human nature. It's part of our makeup, right? It's part of our DNA. So it's happening. But this is where, where, where you and I come together and we elevate faith. The fact that there is something transcendent, much more powerful than you and I. Something way beyond this. There is an architect in the universe, without a doubt. In the words of Elon Musk, you can't deny the fact that there's a designer out there.
1: I (laughs) agree. And and he would know as a pretty good designer himself. (laughs)
2: Absolutely. Yeah. They asked him, you know, so do you believe he goes, if you want to call it God, whatever you want, I can't deny the fact there is a designer, an architect out there. The universe was designed. This is not by chance.
1: I think it was like Trey Parker, or Matt Stone from South Park, who had some great line. It's like, the only thing sillier than religion is the idea that there's no God out there, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> great line,
0: great line, great line. Right. And,
2: and so faith, this is the moment. Again, you and I can't explain absolutely everything, but there is this logical continuity, sort of the chapters repeating themselves throughout the course of human history. All we have to do is go back to the Roman Empire, even, even beyond that, to the Greek Empire, Mesopotamia, all the way to now. There are some cyclical patterns here that cannot be denied. And I do believe we're in one of them right now, currently. Hence, the idea here is that we're driven. Why should we persevere? When your integrity is more important than your influence, I do believe nothing can stop you. I think we have some drivers. So when your hunger for righteousness is greater than your fear of criticism, nothing can stop you. And to a great degree, when your praise is louder than your pain, nothing can stop you. So it's doable.
1: I love it. And, and, and I, I'll tell you, that actually gets me thinking. Just in terms of stories and stories of faith, one of the things that I was most excited to see in your book and would have most prompted a high five was you're a big sci-fi fan, which I did not know, which is awesome. I wish I'd known that the last time we spoke. <laughs> so let's start there. Why has Dune been such a phenomenon?
2: Oh, boy. And I'm talking about it's the it right now. It's the, because of that embedded sort of meta narrative, right? Of the cosmos with a greater architectural sort of meta design. So Dune has this super cosmic transcendent element with an overcoming component. Of course, the sci-fi is brilliant. The cinematography is on point. You name it. The narrative, the emerging characters, these guys are all going to be like, you know, A-listers at the end of the day. Just brilliant. And everyone's coming around it. Now, I'm old enough to know when I was a kid kid, and I mean a kid the original Dune, right? And it was a flop in the box office. (laughs) It was
1: David Lynch. (laughs) Yeah, it was just,
2: it did not land because it was way beyond its time. Even the storytelling component, right? David Lynch had a quirky way of telling the story, as you all know. He had his own nuances and the way that he projected and, and how he saw a story develop. But wow, again, it speaks to that. Going beyond us, a different world, the idea of creating a different universe. I do believe that that speaks to the hunger now. The Elijah and the of the 21st century are cultural architects, societal reformers, innovators. They're creators. It's ingenuity. It's innovation. It's people that are not just satisfied with occupying space, but the builders. So I think we're shifting from this uber hyper consumerism to a generation that's a little bit misunderstood, but a generation that's committed to producing. It's not just the consumption generation, the the Z generation, it's more of a, I just don't wanna consume, I wanna produce. Hence, you know, a thousand and one TikTok videos and everything on Instagram and Facebook, produce, 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 produce. And if we channel this the right way and we create some wonderful, not not rails of limitation, but security rails so they won't fall and they're able to live out their God-ordained destinies, the next generation without a doubt, maybe I'm the only one saying this, the next generation is going to do greater things. And I do believe they're going to do phenomenal things. So I don't drink I the whole so thing I so
1: agree. Am I right? I so agree. And actually, it speaks to something that I care about very, very deeply these days. And I've spoken about it on, on this podcast and other podcasts. You know, I feel like faith communities, traditional communities more generally have gotten into the space where like all we do, like you said earlier, we just complain, complain, yes. complain about culture and how bad it is. And it doesn't reflect our values. And like, what are we doing to build culture? I mean, like, A wonderful person said to me recently, it seems so strange to treat faith audiences like a niche audience. Like, that's the audience. That is society. So as someone who has kind of thought deeply about this, the world of entertainment, media, and so forth, what do we do to build the kind of culture, the kind of pop culture that we want to see?
2: The first thing we do is stop blaming in perpetuity and condemning and cursing the very thing we want to transform or be a part of. For crying out loud, it's like if San Rodriguez would get up on stage and just you know curse the living daylights out of Hollywood. I'm producing movies in Hollywood.
1: The original punk rock is the Bible.
2: <laughs> yes. Why would I want to curse the very institution or or facilitative wine skin that I want to be a part of and provide new wine for that I'm growing rapes in, in my vineyard for? Absolutely not. So you do things differently. You don't have to agree with everything. We're not negating that there are threads ideologies, social constructs that are counterintuitive to the values that you and I hone near and dear, to values that have been substantiated what we would call, in historical terms, Judeo-Christian values, a Judeo-Christian value system, which is the underlying, undergirding value system of Western civilization, and of greater civilization, for that matter, because those that are even not in the Western world have adopted, to a great degree, the core values there. So it's way beyond. Even that term, Western civilization, we have to revisit that. I think it's a little bit archaic. We have to do away with it. That's more the last century. It's just civilization, because it's permeated everything. So we can't negate when there's ideologies that are counterintuitive to that, that we should confront. These ideologies, but not in a way that's coarse and full of hatred and rancor and political partisanship, but coming around to coalescing around Psalm 89:14. The answer I, I am convinced to this very day that Psalm 89:14 has the prescription on how to do life, how to do politics, how to do culture, how to engage each other, righteousness and justice, truth and love. We're done. Mic drop. There it is. Righteousness and justice, truth and love can't beat it. That's the answer. So that's how we engage and empower and elevate. That's how we pass the mantle over to the Alicia's. we got to do away with rhetorical pornography. The words that come out of our mouth are so abusive on occasion, so destructive and so harmful and traumatic. We have to be careful what we say, what we write, how we express ourselves. And I'm not a hippie from California. I know I sound like one right now. It's all about notice. I'm not just saying love. I'm saying truth with love. I alluded to you last time if all we do is do truth we're mathematicians from Stanford. If all we do is love we're hippies from Berkeley. But the moment we combine truth with love we are truly people of faith. And that that's what makes us, you know, who we are as modern day Elijahs or Elishas.
1: Truth plus love equals story, right? That's what we're looking for.
2: Absolutely. And that's how we change the world.
1: Exactly. One of the most influential teachers I ever had, incredibly pious man, deeply learned a Hasidic Jew from a community called Skver. You know, for those who aren't familiar with the intricacies of the community, you'll recognize them. They have the furry hats and the long coats and all those things. Yep. One of my greatest teachers ever. And I'll never forget the time that he said to me, Ari, if you've watched The Godfather and it hasn't affected your soul, it's because you don't have one. And I'll I'll never forget that. And his perspective, you know, was the depths and, and the breadth of human creativity is something that can tell us about the author of the human condition himself, namely God Almighty. And it doesn't mean that all culture is good, just like it doesn't mean that you know all food is good or all everything is good. But my question is, as someone who's a leader from a faith tradition, what are those like one or two, whether it's movies, TV shows, albums, like what are those one or two things that you've really felt like, I've taken away something really powerful from this and it's actually affected my ministry?
2: There are movies and books, of course, throughout the course of history. There are books that have emerged with narratives that have been able to do that on my end of the scale throughout the course of human history and even movies. There are certain movies that, that speak more to my generation now. So mind you, I'm going to I'm going to age
1: myself. Let's do it. <laughs> but that, I'm an old I'm an old soul. I'm like I'm, I'm like uh, I have like serious opinions about like Pete Townsend versus Roger Daltrey. You know, like. <laughs> there it is. There it is.
2: I think Christopher Nolan has an insight. In the way he does movies, I think the Dark Knight may arguably be. And I know it's Batman and I, you may take that with, you know, tongue in cheek. Not but at no. all.
1: I totally agree.
2: The way Nolan did the Dark Knight, the way he captured the vulnerability, the brokenness of humanity, the gray Gotham City, the constant gray over Gotham City, if you look at the Dark Knight movie and the only sunshine you see is at the end of the entire movie, the series, when at the end you have, of course, Christian Bale seated across And you have Michael Caine looking at him in the restaurant somewhere in Paris. And the sun finally comes out So I think that Dark Knight speaks of the brokenness of humanity The frailty of humanity Our constant seeking for something higher and bigger than ourselves Sacrifice for one another The redemptive element, of course The resurrection component It's all embedded in there Movies, the original Matrix had some complexities And some mystical transcendent elements The original Then it went down a slippery slope of just being conflated On so many different threads in one shot That it was like you were eating pizza with Chateaubriand, with <laughs> Chinese food, and you knew it's one like, my palate cannot handle this. So I am so sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to say deuces. <laughs> but these are some of the movies that, that have emerged with great, I mean, there are some that are just obvious, right? Those that are religiously motivated, faith inspired and so forth. But there are some that have really captured the essence. And those are some that speak to me to a great degree. And the writings of Malcolm Gladwell and others who really inspire us to go beyond ourselves and transcend and even Jordan Peterson to a great point. There are others that have inspired me to go beyond Sam Rodriguez and to think of things differently. At the end of the day, I do believe, you know, we are what we write. We are what we read. So you know, you read and you write, you read and you write, you read and you write constantly, and then you produce ideas and you communicate them in a way that hopefully is persuasive and will enable other people to achieve their God-ordained destinies. Ari, I'm still one of those that believes that there's a purpose for each and every one of us, that we're not here by chance. I'm one of those.
1: Amen, oh my God. So that actually leads pretty directly to my last question, which is a friend of mine, Samuel Goldman, a wonderful writer, columnist for The Week, had a great column about a month ago, I think, Where he made the argument that, you know, it's so common to think of America's peer countries or closest comparisons as being in Europe, whether it's England, France, Scandinavian countries, what have you. And he made the argument, which I think speaks to the point you made earlier, that actually our closest colleagues or our peer group is really South America. And you could look at it across so many different dimensions. We're more religious than our friends across the ocean. In many ways, our societies are more dangerous. On the one hand, our murder rates are higher, but there are also positive elements to that. There's a lot more resilience on this side of the ocean, I think. There are also much more diverse populations in America and in South America. And we have this mix of responding to... Indigenous populations, colonial is like we have these like these interesting tensions of, of different stories conflicting, collapsing, colliding. And I actually thought about this a lot recently, as you see, even within America itself, Hispanic communities, Latino communities bucking all the expectations that people have about them. And in many ways, I kind of related to it so deeply from within sort of like a very traditional, in my case, Orthodox, like very traditional Jewish community, where I think a lot of the assumptions that people make about the Jewish community, sociologically and politically speaking, don't feel right to me. And you sort of see a lot of that changing. So as someone who's kind of within the Hispanic, the Latino community and thinks really civilizationally and thinks about the wider narrative, like what's happening, where are we heading in the future with this?
2: Holy cow, it is the most fluid, transcendent, independent, redefining community in the past 100 years. Even politically speaking, we are the quintessential independent electorate. The last election indicated that even President Obama, a former President Obama, referenced the fact that the Latino community is not monolithic. And it flipped Florida, solidified Texas, moved New Mexico and Arizona even towards something that surprised many, particularly it surprised the left. Primarily, because of the faith element and the family element. So, but way beyond politics, in every in every regard, I wrote a piece for Fox News. Your, your audience could reference it. It gave the statistics that were laid out in a recent Pew Research. Pretty amazing regarding the middle class, fastest growing middle class in America, Latinos. So now, Latinos, we are about to surpass white as so our Caucasian. That's code word for white. <laughs> our Caucasian brothers and sisters in America, we're about to surpass them in home ownership. Now, this is pretty wild. Latinos are going to, on a percentage pay perspective, will have a higher percentage of home ownership than whites in America. Think about that. A college graduation rate, Latinos are beyond right now, white as it pertains in the last three years mm. in percentage of, of gra- in every single metric from home ownership to graduation from college, university, across the board, the median income has increased, blew up, you name it. So surprise, surprise. And again, you can't put this community in one little silo and say it's a voting block for this party or they believe this no it's just this amazing thriving fluid independent that surprises the living daylights out of everyone there are some common factors about faith a commitment to familia so very few latinos you would see their parents and not that it's bad but you would see that you would not see their parents unless worst case scenario in in a nursing home because latinos have this thing of you know my mom, my grandmother, my great-grandmother they I so relate to this <laughs> you, you know, so I'm, I'm sorry It's just that, that familia component mm-hmm. That multi-generational element that we referenced In the beginning of our conversation So yeah, I am blessed to be part of this community I'm blessed to be an American of Latino descent But it's a wonderful community That I do believe will emerge as a cultural architect In
1: America in the 21st century Amen Pastor Sam, thank you so much for being with us
2: Thank you for yeah. having me, my friend Shalom, mi amigo, shalom Ah, I love it
1: As we push through nearly two years of suffering, as we seek to overcome a terrible pandemic, there's no question that systematic thinking, mathematics, the sciences, scientific method, are essential. I mean, we're not getting the recovery conversation off the ground without it. But one thing that's clear from even just like a casual observation of American society these days is that we're experiencing not only a sickness of the body, but a sickness of the soul. We're angry. We're divided. We're anxious. So if we want a full recovery, and not just a recovery, but revitalization, growth in the generation ahead, we need, as I've said on the pod so many times, not just system, but story. We need to be able to remember our stories, tell them across many generations, and tell them with truth and love. And if we can do that, then we'll truly be able to bless our suffering and respond as Jacob did all those years ago. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. This was a blast. If you enjoyed the pod, then be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time.
0: faith effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a soul shot podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at G faith effort follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop_studios. underscore studios and check out soulshopstudios.com.